Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. Hello. In this episode, I have a poetry flight for you. Three poems about school. In my family, everyone is a teacher, student, or both. And we have several schedules going on, school calendars. We are all on summer break. So that might partly be why this theme is on my mind. I used to be jealous of poetry podcast hosts. I thought, why do they get to do that? I want to read poems for people. And, well, here I am. So now I only have one group left to be jealous of, and that is the editors of poetry anthologies. I see a book come out like 50 best poems to read by the campfire or poems to celebrate every season or something, and I think, hey, why does he or she get to pick those poems? I have very strong opinions about what should be in that book. So I hope someday to edit a poetry anthology. I'm going to tell you what theme I have in mind, and you have to promise not to steal my idea. Okay, you easily could beat me to this idea, but you have to live with yourself. And do you want to be the kind of person, do you want to wake up in the morning and know you're the kind of person who steals people's anthology ideas? If so, that's on you. Okay, here's my idea. I want to edit an anthology of poems about education. Does that sound exciting? (laughs) I, I actually, um, started having this idea in earnest when I recorded episode eight, a poem by Scott Cairns called Recitation. And it's about a moment of epiphany as a man studies alone, reads some words out loud from his book, and is suddenly struck by what they really mean. So when I say education, I don't know, I could have said learning, school, epiphany, inspiration, all of those things that to me are connected. The word education does sound boring because it's been made into maybe an abstract concept with that Asian ending on the word, but it comes from a root which means to call out and draw forth. To draw forth what? Why? The soul, of course. To draw forth one's humanity. And I think that the Holy Spirit has a huge part in that. And to me, it's one of the underappreciated magic parts of life is that experience of understanding, learning, and teaching and being taught by other human beings who have that as their goal. So someday, I'm going to put that together. It's going to be amazing. But for now, I'm going to focus on one aspect of that, which is, as I said, actual school. There are so many poems about birds and flowers and romantic love and spring and things like that. And yet 
we all spend so many hours in school. I'm surprised there aren't more poems about what happens to the young person in that setting. Well, here's three about school. The first one is by Jill Osier. This one is the shortest and the most mysterious. It's called Night, and it's nine little couplets, and that's all. The title Night is also the first word of the poem. It goes like this. Night wraps the red brick elementary school, sitting snow-capped on a hill, like a nurse too tired to change her clothes. Tonight, she sat down and stayed there. She has looked into young mouths and ears. She has held young bones and sent them breaking home. She's waited until all the children have gone to unwrap what one boy gave her, the black paper napkin. It's strawberry, each fine seed intact. A lot of Jill Osier's poems have a very mysterious feeling to them. Some of them feel like fables. Some of them feel like something, um, I don't want to say surreal. Maybe mysterious is the best word. Something special is going on. In this one, the simile of the school being like a nurse, too tired to change her clothes. That's the first half of the poem. And then it moves on to talk about this she. I think either the simile has come alive and this personification of the building as a nurse is being continued, in which case this is very metaphorical. It's interesting to think of it that way, to think of the she as being the school for the rest of the um, poem. But I think it changes from that simile to the she being about a teacher who's inside the school. That's how I read it. Why is it night? Why is she there alone with this paper napkin with a strawberry? Now, this could just be me reading into it, but that black paper napkin, people don't use those at home. Those are usually used at special events. So in my imagination, this is after a Christmas program or maybe um, maybe a parent-teacher conference that had refreshments or something that happened in the evening at school and the little boy gave her a strawberry. That black and red at the end, can you see that? In your mind, that's good stuff. Having just finished a year of teaching, I kind of feel this sitting in a place of emptiness with a few small gifts that have been left with me from students. And now that I'm a teacher, I do realize more what that means, even something so small as a little heart, a little something set down on paper. I'll read this one more time and listen for the switch from the building to the she and how much um, 
just subtlety Osir shows here. She doesn't mention any emotions, but there is so much here. Night wraps the red brick elementary school, sitting snow-capped on a hill, like a nurse too tired to change her clothes. Tonight she sat down and stayed there. She has looked into young mouths and ears. She has held young bones and sent them breaking home. She's waited until all the children have gone to unwrap what one boy gave her, the black paper napkin, its strawberry, each fine seed intact. My second one here is um, by Philip Levine. This is from his book, What Work Is, and it is so good. It is one of those collections that at times the soil of my mind is not ready to receive it, and at times it is, and I have almost gone into a trance reading this book at times. <clears throat> this one is a little story in um, typical Levine style. There are no stanzas, it's just a big chunk, a page and a third of um, pretty compact lines. So it's more like a story. It's called M. Degas Teaches Art and Science at Durfee Intermediate School, Detroit, 1942. Here it is. He made a line on the blackboard one bold stroke from right to left, diagonally downward, and stood back to ask, looking as always at no one in particular, what have I done? From the back of the room, Freddy shouted, you've broken a piece of chalk. M. Degas did not smile. What have I done? He repeated. The most intellectual students looked down to study their desks, except for Gertrude Bimler, who raised her hand before she spoke. M. Degas, you've created the hypotenuse of an isosceles triangle. Degas mused. Everyone knew that Gertrude could not be incorrect. Uh, it's possible, Louis Warshawski added precisely, that you've begun to represent the roof of a barn. I remember that it was exactly 20 minutes past 11, and I thought at worst this would go on another 40 minutes. It was early April. The snow had all but melted on the playgrounds, the elms and maples bordering the cracked walls shivered in the new winds, and I believed that before I knew it I'd be swaggering to the candy store for a Milky Way. M. Degas pursed his lips and the room stilled until the long hand of the clock moved to 21, as though in complicity with Gertrude, who added confidently, you've begun to separate the dark from the dark. I looked back for help, but now the trees bucked and quaked, and I knew this could go on forever. 
Did you think when I started talking about education that I was going to romanticize all of it and spiritualize all of it? I love this poem and I dedicate it to all the bad moments that really good teachers have had in their classrooms. The fact is that a classroom can feel an awful lot like a prison cell. And not just to the students. I think it can feel that way to the teacher too. Of course in this poem it's spring and what's going on outside the windows is calling to the soul of at least this one boy trapped here. What he wants and what the teacher wants in this moment are at odds and that friction's causing a little bit of heat. Does this bring back memories of being trapped? Now, there's a lot of ways to have a class period not work out well. There's some ways that happen when the teacher doesn't care, and there's some that happen when the teacher cares a lot. In my read, Degas is a teacher who really cares. You can feel his yearning here, just like the boy in the chair is yearning to go get a candy bar and to be free and to be outside. Mr. Degas wants something. He wants it bad. And that's partly what's causing the trouble here as teachers play, as the students play, guess what's in the teacher's head. I've been here. You can know completely that this is not the way to teach and yet find yourself in this situation if you care a lot. I love the characters, the other children in here, the girl who always gets the right answer, and I love her increasingly poetic interpretation of what the teacher could possibly be doing or wanting from them. She's willing to go for it. I wonder what happens to little Gertrude when she grows up. I don't know if any calling out of a soul or humanity is happening here. What do you think? Is learning happening? Is formation happening? Well, this um, National Book Award winning poet was writing about this decades later. Why do you think it remained in his memory? Why do you think he found it poetic? You know, I will read this one more time because it's summer break and I hope you have time to listen and I have time to read. M. Degas teaches art and science at Durfee Intermediate School, Detroit, 1942. He made a line on the blackboard, one bold stroke from right to left, diagonally downward, and stood back to ask, looking as always at no one in particular, what have I done? From the back of the room, Freddie shouted, you've broken a piece of chalk. M. Degas did not smile. What have I done? He repeated. The most intellectual students looked down to study their desks, except for Gertrude Bimler, who raised her hand before she spoke. M. Degas, you have created the hypotenuse of an isosceles triangle. Degas mused. Everyone knew that Gertrude could not be incorrect. It is possible, Louis Warshawski added precisely, 
that you've begun to represent the roof of a barn. I remember that it was exactly 20 minutes past 11, and I thought, at worst, this would go on another 40 minutes. It was early April. The snow had all but melted on the playgrounds. The elms and maples bordering the cracked walks shivered in the new winds, and I believed that before I knew it, I'd be swaggering to the candy store for a Milky Way. M. Degas pursed his lips, and the room stilled until the long hand of the clock moved to 21, as though in complicity with Gertrude, who added confidently, You've begun to separate the dark from the dark. I looked back for help, but now the trees bucked and quaked, and I knew this could go on forever. My last poem about school is by Kim Stafford, a local Oregon poet, son of another local poet. He has several actually about school, about elementary school memories. Um, and this is the one that I chose to read today. It's called simply Mrs. Smith, 1959. Her name, the way she stood, her station in the larger world may not have been known, but to me, to us, then, fifth grade, Cold War, she was our calm. One trance-like afternoon, she read to us from a little book of terrors, John Hershey's Hiroshima. Could this be happening? A child with skin falling away? A mother clawing through rubble we saw? Were blinded by death and our nation's act? In her voice, without judgment, but deep sorrow. When Mrs. Smith looked over the top of the book at us, we were a silence, waiting. This is about, she said, what we must never do again. How many heroes does one life need? For me, that one. She gave lessons no one else in all my years of schooling touched. By the time she closed the book, I had become a child neither television nor president nor any strident voice could dissuade from loyalty to the human way those children walked among ruins in the war-torn world. You've probably heard the saying, the best teachers don't teach students what to think, but how to think. I get that. I understand it. I'm not going to fight against it too much, but I'll tell you something I've noticed. Well, two things when I think back on the best teachers I have had. And I'll tell you this. The best teachers break the rules sometimes. And the best teachers had moments where they taught us what to think about the things that they cared the very most about. Was it their business to tell us students what to think about these various topics? I mean, I have memories in my mind from high school, college, grad school, 
and beyond of teachers who for a moment said, class, join me in this. This is what I believe. Go forward with this in your mind. And this is what Mrs. Smith is doing in this poem with her little fifth grade class. Should she have been reading from a book of horrors? Or was that too difficult for her students? I mean, that's another thing I would say I've noticed in common, if I think back, is the times where teachers brought us something that was too hard. And those are what I remember the most, those moments where something was too difficult, arguably, but the teacher brought it knowing, no, this is what you can rise to, and this is what I have to offer you that's the best. And we're doing this. I love this poem because of that. Mrs. Smith is um, in a danger zone here. She's reading um, this violent graphic book about the aftermath of the atomic bombs in Japan. She's telling the students what to think about it. And what I love is she's reading aloud. The more years go by, the more I'm thankful for the physical way to love people through reading aloud. I will always treasure the time with my children, tucked under my arms on the couch, um, with my students. Sometimes it's so tiring to read aloud, but it feels like one of the things I was put on earth to do. And Mrs. Smith is here peeking over the top of her book at these quiet, stunned, frightened faces. And she's telling them, children, this is the world. And this is why we study history. It's for prudence. It's so we can know what to do and to not do in the future. We have to learn from this. And that pleading. M Mr. Degas in the last poem was pleading too, right? And we didn't get in that poem to realize what it was he was wanting so badly from his students. But in this one, we see what it is she wants from her little children. And the poet tells us it worked. He went forward, he brought this with him, and what he learned there at her knee made him impervious in the future to anything other than compassion for humanity that he'd seen through what she read. In a way, this is a sad poem. It is. I'm going to end by reading this. But also, I see in it so much joy and hope. And as he says, who was this Mrs. Smith in 1959? Nobody knows. But she endures in his mind. She had a torch and she passed it to him and he's putting it into his poem and I'm reading it to you and it is sending out ripples. It does mean something. It mattered what she did there in her class. I think it's interesting this one and the last one. The title is the teacher's name and the date. There is something historical about teaching um, Mr. Degas was giving his slashed line lesson before, it was 1942, right? Before um, the bombing of Hiroshima. Now Mrs. Smith is 15 years or so after. 
Um, so the historical, uh, where the teacher stands in history of the nation and the world, but also in the history of the child's life. It's just interesting to me that they both um, set it as a historical event to be in these classrooms in a certain place, a certain time, with a certain human, with a certain name. So here you go, Mrs. Smith, 1959. Her name, the way she stood, her station in the larger world may not have been known, but to me, to us, then, fifth grade, Cold War, she was our calm. One trance-like afternoon, she read to us from a little book of terrors, John Hershey, Hiroshima. Could this be happening? A child with skin falling away? A mother clawing through rubble, we saw, were blinded by death and our nation's act. In her voice, without judgment, but deep sorrow. When Mrs. Smith looked over the top of the book at us, we were a silence waiting. This is about, she said, what we must never do again. How many heroes does one life need? For me, that one. She gave lessons no one else in all my years of schooling touched. By the time she closed the book, I had become a child. Neither television, nor president, nor any strident voice could dissuade from loyalty to the human way those children walked among ruins in the war-torn world.